Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Today's scripture reading is from Galatians 5, verses 25 through chapter 6, verse 5. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Amen. Amen. We have even two periods there at the end to really show you the end. Good morning, and welcome again to Redeemer Lincoln Square. We uh, started a series last week talking about how before the fall starts, we need to relearn our communal habits. And we're doing this, frankly, because I think everybody agrees that over the past few years, all of our relationships have, have thinned out. And I don't think they just, we've, they've thinned out just in society in general. They've thinned out in our personal lives as well. And yet what's so interesting about this particular topic is I think everybody in this room would agree about the importance of relationships and, and community in general. But then when we try to apply that to our individual lives, when we say let's get down to the granular in our own lives, that's where everything falls apart. And the reason why is because it's actually easy to do what we're about to do, to talk about community in a general sense, to talk about it in an aspirational sense, to talk about it in a, uh, you know, abstraction. But when it comes to our own lives, that's where the disconnect happens. And it, it happens because when it gets down to the nitty-gritty, everything falls apart. We don't know how to activate this in our own lives. We are not in relationships as we should be. We're not in relationships as we ought to be. And that's why this, this fuzzy word that everybody likes to talk about in general, community, is safe, but then it, it's dangerous when we actually start getting down to my life. And so, whether you're a Christian here today or not a Christian, I think we can all agree this is a problem. This is something that is, is real. And we need to look at it, and we're going to address it in three ways. We're going to look at, one, the failure of community. Two, we're going to look at the features of community. And then three, the foundation of community. All right? We're going to look at that failure, features, foundation of community. Right now, let's go. First, the failure of community. What leads to failed communities? I'm sure you all have some sort of idea of why, why you think that's true. Psychologists, sociologists do as well. But let's look at Paul. Paul, in verse 25, our first verse here, 
This is, by the way, one of the first statements he says after he gives us the well-known list of the fruit of the Spirit. Earlier he says, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And then he says, hey, you want to know how to have the fruit of the Spirit in your life? You want to know how to, how to get that? You have to live by the Spirit here in verse 25. And this is important. Why? Because for Paul, it's not good enough just to call yourself a Christian. There's been a lot of injury and harm done in this world because people who've called themselves Christians don't live as Christians. For Paul, he would say it's possible for you to go to church, think you're a Christian, and not really be one, which for all of us should kind of give us a pause. Because for him, look what he says. He says, at some level, being a Christian means living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit in verse 25. So we should be asking ourselves, fine, then what does that look like? And he tells us the next verse, verse 26. The way to do that, he starts in the negative. He says, let us not become conceited. In other words, if you want to be able to live by the Spirit, if you want to know the, the place where the failure of community starts, it's in this conceitedness that leads to, he has two words here, provoking or envying. And we need to look at both of those. What does it mean to provoke and envy? It means this at least. Conceitedness or self-conceit is having a false representation of your own life. And let's be honest, if you have, a if you have an inaccurate view of yourself, a false view of yourself, you're going to have an inaccurate view, a false sense of other people. And how does that come out? Well, it comes out in two ways, provoking and envying. First, provoking. The Greek word for provoke here is the word that means to challenge, to a duel. The, the illusion is like a contest or a duel, which is important because provoking is not just believing you have a superior view on other people. It's not just a, an air of superiority. It's wanting to demonstrate that superiority for other people to see. And so in other words, it's not good enough just to know that you're better, th I'm better than you, and I want to tell you about it, and I want to show you, and I want to articulate to you how you don't have your life as put together as I do, how you don't, uh, you're not as moral as, as I do. Here's what you're lacking, and it's not, that's not good enough. It's also to let other people know about it. That's what it means to have a, an air of superiority. And that's not, by the way, this is not just competition. Competition kills community. It's a superior spirit. And I think we all get this, right? It's really, really hard to be friends with somebody who's always feeling not just superior, but wants to show everybody else around you how much better that they are than you. But here's where it's dirty. What's dirty is when you see that, what's our natural inclination? It's to go like this. <sighs> hate those people that are always calling other people out, always looking down on other people, always feeling like they're better than everybody else. I can't believe them. And what happens there? You start feeling superior about their superiority. And then you end up doing the very same thing that they've done to you, and you don't even know it. And they don't usually, by the way, know they're doing that to you. They can't see it. And it's there. And I think this is actually one of the reasons why maybe we stay with friends that are of our own economic class or, or racial background or geographic background. I think one of the reasons is not just comfort. I wonder how much of it is this a sense of the way I do things, the way I see things, is superior. 
And then he says that's conceitedness at some level. But here's secondly, second point in here for how f- community fails is Paul thinks you can be conceited also by envying. What does it mean to envy? To envy means not just to say that person has something over there. It's to say that person has something over there and I want it. It's to say they have something over there and I need it. And so look at Paul. This is actually really complete. You can be conceited by having too high a view of yourself, but you can also be conceited by having too low a view of yourself and having a sense of inferiority. I got this from John Stott. John Stott points out that um, you can walk around life going like this. I'm awesome and I'm amazing and let me tell you about it. But you can also walk around going like this. That person's awesome and that person's amazing and I really wish I was like that. And when you go like that, both those views kill community. Why? Because who wants to be around somebody who has this fantasy land of their superiority, who walks around saying, I can do this, why can't you? I'm attractive, why can't you be? I'm amazing at my job, why can't you be? I'm an activist, why can't you be? I am funny and smart and, you know, fill in the blank, why aren't you? Who wants to be around that? But a sense of envy does this. They have that, why don't I? I want I need, I have to have, I don't get. And when you start acting that way, when you have those feelings well up, and by the way, this happens daily for me, walking down the street, in my own head, and what happens in that moment is you can't focus on on other people and their needs when you're focusing on your own so much. Another way to put that is you can't give if you're always in want. If you're always staring at yourself, you can't look out there and see what the, what's real. And so, before we move on, I want to ask you, which one are you? What's your temperament? Is your temperament more air on the superiority side of things, or are you more on the inferiority thing side of things? I've been look, evaluating this week. I think I can be both, not just with different people, but I could be both in the same situation in the, with the same person where I feel better about this aspect of my life, but worse over there. And guess what Paul is saying? He's saying one of the reasons why our relationships have thinned out, one of the reasons why there's not real community in our lives is because of this. This is a community killer. It's having too high a view or too low a view in your own life and in the lives of other folks. That's number one. Now, secondly then, for Paul, then what are the true features of community? If that's the failure... What's real features of community? Now, I'm not talking psychologically. I'm not talking sociologically. You probably have a lot of features in your mind of what you feel like you need to have. They have to be uh, in this age range, and they have to have this life experience. That's yours. That's not Paul. Paul actually gives us, I believe, two marks that are utterly unique. Number one feature, look at the next verse. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin— you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. And then, by the way, this, I believe, I've been meditating on this verse all week long. This is a profound verse for our time. Because look at verse 1. The, the, the assumption first is somebody is caught in sin. The Greek word here alludes to, um, it's a, it's, it, there's, the tense is in the passive tense, and it alludes to somebody trapped. So it's probably somebody who's done something wrong and they don't even know they've done something wrong. 
And it's an ongoing action. It's, 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 it's happening in their life still. So that's assumption number one. Assumption number two is we're supposed to do something about it. And then assumption number three is that what we're supposed to do is he sa- it says restore. You are to restore that person. The word restore is a, a Greek word for mending uh, nets that are broken. You have to fix them, kind of like uh, fixing a dislocated finger. Uh, you probably can't see this up here, but uh, I dislocated this one. It's a little more crooked. You can't see it, but it's crooked. Trust me. This pinky got a lot more dislo- got dislocated because a couple years ago it got bent back. I think I was doing something dumb with a football, and because I can't catch, and it went, and then it bent backwards. And I, what I had to do is I had to pull it out, put it back in, because you had to fix it. It hurts to dis- have a finger dislocated to put it back in. It hurts even more. But the goal is to fix it. I've, I've dislocated my shoulder before. When you dislocate something, guess what happens? There's a lot of pain, not just in the, when it breaks, but then also when you have to put it back in. But the goal is to fix. And this is why, by the way, why I think this is so countercultural. Because why? Modern people, us today, we're really good at pointing out other people's wrongdoing. Hey, that's wrong. Put out the APB. Let's tell the world. We're good at pointing out where somebody else has done wrong, but we don't do it gently. Or, you notice what we're good at? This is, the New, this is the New York way. We're walking down, we see some sort of brokenness. We're like, well, it's not bothering me, not my problem. That's not just out on the street. That's actually in other people's lives. It's in our own church. If that person's having a hard time, not bugging me, not my problem. We'll either call it out, not gently, or not talk about it, ignore it, and Paul's saying neither one of those actions is valid because you're supposed to restore and fix and mend. And the context is gentleness. I don't know about you, but when, I've, uh, when somebody's come to confront me, I can tell right away within the first five seconds if this is going to be done gently or not. And also when I've tried to confront other people, I can t- it's really, really hard to do it gently when you have the feelings that you feel. But here's what's, what, why it's so hard. Because it's possible to tell somebody truth, but do it in such a way where they can't actually hear that truth. Paul in other places talks about truth and love, love and truth, because it's possible to say something truthfully without it being lovingly. Which means, and this is what's so crazy about this text, if this is the context for restoration, then Paul believes if you don't do this in gentleness, the person breaking community is not the one who messed up. The person breaking community is actually, the onus is on the people who are unable to restore gently. And here's, the tr- and here's where the, uh, the proof's in the pudding. The fact that this isn't our default, the fact that this isn't etched into our brain, the fact that this isn't our paradigm for how anything happens in our life is indicative of A, how we see ourselves and, how, and what kind of communities we're actually in. It shows how little we actually do this. And by the way, you want to say, why, why don't I have real friends and community? Why is our, my relationship so thin? Who would ever want to be in a relationship with other people that doesn't have this as the context? That if you actually ever reveal yourself and show what, like, really what's going on, that the knives will come out and you're about to be butchered up. Who would want that? No wonder we're not in this kind of community where we're not going to open up. Of course not. So, and here's a test then for you. Can you 
when you go to somebody that needs to be confronted, can you do it in a way where the person can at the end of it hear what you're saying and know at some level that you've come to them in love and kindness and respect and concern for them? Because I would argue if you can't do that, first of all, you probably don't have a deep enough relationship that warrants you to be able to confront them. But two, if that's not how they feel, then you actually haven't done it in, in, a, in a spirit of gentleness. Because it comes in your tone, it comes in your context. And so this is where it's crazy. Real community for Paul doesn't ignore sin, but it also doesn't move out and seek to de- destroy somebody because of their sin. Instead, Christians, I think what we're supposed to do, if we really believe the, the fullness of the Bible, that there's a final restoration and redemption of all of creation at the end of time in history, then you and I can have many versions, we can have many tastes of that now if we actually seek this type of restoration. And we can actually have it when we've restored other people, but then when you've been restored. And so I would argue in our culture right now, we, might, we have a call-out culture, it will win the battle. It will win the popularity contest, and it will lose the war as it leads dead bodies on the sidelines. As we get our community smaller and smaller and smaller, as we divide further and further and further, and Paul is saying that's not the main feature of a Christian community. That is not the assumption. The assumption here is a gentle restoration. And so before we move on, is that your default mode? And, I, and, I, and let's call that not just on you individually. Let's ask ourselves this in our church. Is this the default mode of our space here? And if it's not, why isn't it? Number one. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. Number two, the second main feature that is given to us for community that in this text is to carry and bear each other's burdens. Now look at the next verse, right? Verse two, carry each other's burdens. Again, there's assumptions here. Number one, this is in the imperative. This is a Greek word. means this is a command. This is not an option. Maybe if you feel like it. Maybe if you have them. So what he's saying is, if we're not doing this, at some level, then you don't actually have real community. You were meant to allow other people to carry your burdens and vice versa. In fact, I would argue one of the biggest problems in our space right now, the reason why we don't have real community is because of this. Either some of you in this room don't feel like you have burdens for other people to carry, which by the way, kills community because nobody wants somebody who feels like they have it all put together and you don't let anybody in. Or some of you believe that you do have burdens, but you don't feel other people can actually bear them and or you don't want to bear other people's burdens. Both those views are false. Let me show you how. For those of you who say, I don't really have burdens for other people to bear, 
the problem there is you're not really being honest with yourself. Because I believe everybody in this room has a broken story at some level. Everybody in this room has a, a broken family story, broken experiences, hurt when it comes to our temporal, physical, emotional, spiritual, economic, relational aspects. And we have those needs. And we were never meant to carry those on our own. And I believe the sooner that you wake up to yourself and the hurts that you might have been bearing your whole life because our, our culture says, just show me the resume, don't show me the bad stuff, just show me the good stuff, the more we bury that, the less community that you can have for Paul. And the sooner we wake up to that, the sooner we can have it there. But secondly, if you feel like you do have burdens and you're weighed down by them, but you don't feel like other people can bear them, or you don't really want to—I <laughs> don't want to—I know those people over there, I see their burdens. I don't want any of that. The problem with that view is it doesn't realistically understand community. That when Paul says, carry each other's burdens, go into the imagery here. To get close to somebody—this is a—here's somebody that's burdened. To get close to some of the burden, you have to be close enough to them to see it, to be around it. And then notice— when you get close enough for them to carry your burden, you're close enough for them to carry yours. See, go back to the text. It says, carry each other's burden. And so what, what this means then is if we are helping carry each other's burdens, then nobody in this room is being asked to carry anybody's burden solely and exclusively. That we need to realize—sorry, my headset's coming off. We need to realize— and this, this is, I don't know how we do this because it's hard for us to get outside of our social location. But let me just try to give you a five-second history reminder. You, for human history, are at the pinnacle of the most individualistic society in all of creation that, that culture has ever made. Which means, I can promise you right now, we have no idea how to actually share our burdens. And for the 67% of you that filled out our survey that said you have less than five friends here at Redeemer Lincoln Square, this is one of the reasons why. And then go, go one step further. How the heck are we going to be able to move out and help other people with their burdens outside of this church, in our local community, in the needs of the world, if we can't actually care for them here? That you can't see somebody else's burdens unless we spend time enough to see them. And by the way, this is where when we're so overly focused on our work or on our life or, our, or winning and all that stuff, when we're doing that, there's no way you can get around other people. And so before we move on, are you in spaces where you can bear each other's burden? Our community group system is designed so that at least on a weekly basis, you are put in a space with other people that you probably naturally would not have gone and hung out with them to hear their burdens and for them to hear yours. That's what we have, but are, are you in spaces to do this. And if you're saying to yourself, well, that's just beneath me, or I don't have time, or I don't need it, careful. That might be a superiority complex. And if you're saying right now, oh, nobody can handle what I have, and I don't want to really handle what they have, careful. That might be an inferiority complex. Paul says the features of this community is supposed to be a place that restores gently and does it normally and bears each other's burdens and it lets people access to them, and, you, and vice versa. And my question to you is, are we that? Are you that? Because that's the feature of real community. All right, last point. The foundations, the foundation of community. 
if we're going to be able to have any hope of these features, which I believe, and I challenge you all, I think they're unique that you don't have in culture this day, we need to realize we need a, a new foundation because if we're honest, the failure of community exists in our own hearts. It's that inferiority and, and superiority complex. See, Paul goes right back to it. Look at verse 3. If anyone thinks there's something when they are not, what is he doing? <laughs> danger, 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 superiority complex. But then next verse, each one should test their own actions, then they can take pride. What's he doing? Take pride, that's inferiority complex. A lot of people don't know how Paul can say <laughs> within the same, like, two verses how these two phrases go together, but he does because he realizes you're suffering, I'm suffering from e either one of these. But he knows the solution has to be something, some foundation that holds these two things together. And his answer, it's right back in the first verse. It's back with walking with the Spirit, living in the Spirit, being in step with the Spirit, the Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, which Presbyterians don't know how to talk about, <laughs> is a lot of things, but He is at least the one who is here to reveal to us the true nature of God in our life. He's to reveal, the Spirit is to reveal Christ in us and around us. And so what, for Paul, what he's saying is, if you're going to have foundation for community, you need to know Jesus in a deeply profound way. And if you did, here's what would happen. At the same time, you would have a deeper understanding of the lowliness of your condition and yet the loftiness of your status. And you were able, would be able to hold those two things together. Because on the one hand, I think we've made the case, you and I, we do not care for our neighbors at, like ourselves. We do not bear each other's burdens. We do not live up to God's moral code. And let's be honest, we don't even live up to our own moral code. That when it talks about brothers and sisters, if somebody's caught in sin, sin is not just bad things in some sort of like rule book. Biblically, sin is anything that you make too important in your life, more important than God himself. And you can do that with anything and everything. You can do it with your comfort, control, power, approval. And when you elevate that stuff, which we do daily, when we're reminded of those flaws, when we see the brokenness that happens because of it, that brings us down and humbles us. And yet... At the same time, the, the gospel of Jesus says we are at the same exact moment that we realize that we are utterly and completely loved and cherished and accepted. Because for Jesus, we are the joy set before him. For Jesus, we were worth it. And so when Jesus shows up and carries our burdens, the burdens that we can't ultimately carry, when he comes and restores you, and by the way, he does it ever so gently, when Jesus brings us back into the family of God. What's happening in that moment is you are being lifted back up into communion with God, but which, by the way, you can get no higher status than that. And so if you hear anything else <laughs> today, if you hear nothing else, hear this. This is not either or. The power of Christianity is that this is a both and, that when at the same time you realize Jesus had to die for me, that t kills all your superiority because you know Why? Because there's no way you can look at somebody else out there and say they're the problem when you realize cosmically the God of the universe had to die for me. That, that kills the superiority that he had to die for me and at the same time he wanted to die for me. 
that you were worth it for him to die for you, that he treasured you above all other things that he could treasure in the world, that he gave everything up, his status, his power, his approval, everything to come down to love and serve you. And if you did that, that would destroy any sense of inferiority. If you are low, if you are like, I can't get up off the ground, you have to realize that your status with Jesus does not merit that feeling in your life right now. That when you see that, you know what that does? It's a foundation for community. Because you will be able to restore people gently to the degree that you see that your own self has been restored gently. That you will be able to be faithful to other people to the degree that you see that he's been faithful to you. You will be able to bear each other's burdens to the degree that you understand that the real burden of your life has been born. That's the power of Christianity. And I would argue if you, if you are harsh when we're harsh, when we don't do these things, it's because we don't see who Jesus really is. And friends, so we're doing this series right before the fall to try to set the paradigm, to set our, our behaviors because we have a chance at real community, but it can only be had if we hold the costliness of the cross with the love that is found for us on the cross. And when we, we see that, it would kill the normal superiority inferiority complexes that we live by. Because, I, friends, for me, I live that way because I feel good when I'm, when I'm more attractive. I don't feel good when I'm less attractive. I feel good when I'm doing good at my job. I'm feeling bad when I'm not doing good at my job. When you live on that process, it kills community. But with Jesus at the center, you can actually have community because when he becomes our identity— when that becomes permeated in our lives, it allows us to actually accept and move out and bear each other's burdens and restore and do it gently. Last thing I'll say uh, as a means of a, an example. Uh, this summer I've been rereading the, the, the Harry Potter series. I don't want to ruin it for you if you haven't read it, but in the last book, you're like, oh, he's doing it. In the last book, there's a character who you learn that everything this character did for another character even when we didn't understand it at the time, it was always done out of love for that character. And we look back and we see, and there were so many examples that we thought were examples of that character hurting, but actually trying to heal. And it's only at the end when we see, despite what they suffered, despite the loneliness, despite the rejection, that it was always done in service and love for this character. It's that time when we finally see the extent of that love. Biblically speaking, that's the same for us. When we see Jesus' actions, by the way, some of you do not see how his actions in your life right now are helping, not hurting. But when we see his actions, when we see the arc of the biblical story, when we see our place in that movement of redemption and restoration, when we realize to the extent of that love for us, that becomes the foundation. Knowing how cosmically loved that we are. Not that he likes you, but that he treasures you. The love of your life, in my, the love, make him making you the love of his life, making that the love of your life. To the degree that's in your life, everything else falls in place. Friends, I, I think that's the way that we're going to—I can't just get, stand up here and say, bear each other's burdens. I can't say, restore people gently. You will not do that. You can't do that. But if you go here with Jesus, if you walk in line with the Spirit here, 
which means you have to do a little bit of work of reminding yourself and meditating on it and thinking and dwelling and seeing other images of God around you and not being afraid they're going to have the knives out because we, un- we all mutually understand this. That as bad as you are, as you are as accepted as you are. And we can hold those things in tension. That is why we can now really love and bear and do community. And the fact that he made you his glorious inheritance, I would argue means there's something about you that you don't even realize. That you don't see your value enough that he would give up heaven and earth for it. If you can sit in that nature of that love, wow. I think we could do community. I think it would go away from just the ethereal and, the, and the, the aspirational and become actual. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are big concepts, and, and uh, it's hard to sit here and just listen, Father, because where's the praxis? How do we activate this? How do we move this in our life? And it's only going to be your spirit dwelling in us. Please come in a powerful way. Move into our hearts. Use the brokenness that's around, which this is what's so crazy and and so transformational. You will use and you have used the brokenness in our lives to reveal our need so we throw our hearts onto you so we can absorb your grace more to then turn around and love and serve others. Make that the paradigm of this church. Make that the prerogative. Make that the, the foundation of community so we can have these beautiful features that seem unattainable, particularly in today's context. We're praising in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com. Thank you.